Welcome back to the Expanded Minds podcast. This is going to be part two with Nathaniel. So uh, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me and having me back. And looking forward to wherever we end up going in our conversation today. Should be good times. Of course. So today's topic is going to be on fasting. And I know that you're somebody that does a lot of fasting and you've combined it with several other practices, fasting, prayer, you know, semen intention, all these things. And so on your YouTube channel, you've done a dry fast nine days. I know that a lot of right. people will look at that and be like, yep. nine days, no food, no water. Like, how is that possible? Like a lot of people like don't even get past three days. Um, right. So <laughs> can you walk me through like your nine day fast and what does it look like to prepare for a nine day fast? What does it look like to be in the nine day fast? And then how does it look like after? Great. Yeah, for sure. So I feel like we should do a little preface in order to answer your question properly, which is there's a lot to say to answer your question, but I would say the, the context of fasting for me, as we often experience life is there's a story for my fasting journey in general and dry fasting was not the first kind of fasting that I did in, in my life. So if I tell you a little bit of how I came into fasting, then dry fasting, we can have a more focused conversation about that. So what do you say? Yeah, let's get into that. How do you start? Okay, cool. cool. So I was 21 years old and I was living in a, a, a studio slash apartment building in downtown San Jose. And I rehearsed and taught music there. And then I lived there as well. It was a nice place, beautiful building, probably a hundred years old or so. And I had a friend of mine over who I'd known from high school. She was a pianist as well. And because I'm a singer, she's a pianist, I could have her accompany me. She's also a flutist in addition to being a pianist, so I could play the piano for her. So we were doing some musical collaborating and she was gonna go to the store after we finished. And I said, or maybe she just said, you wanna come with me to the store? I'm going to the grocery store, going to Whole Foods. I said, sure, I'll come. I liked her company, we're always, very good friends in high school. And so we were in the store and she bumps into a friend of hers that I had never met. Her friend's name was Jill. Jill was 26 years old at the time. And when I was 21 and Jill was 26, I thought Jill was like a, like an older woman. That was so funny how, you know, our minds are different at the different ages and at the age of 21, a 21 year old was like, wow, that's, 26-year-old girls, like, really a lot older than I Jill is also, that was the name of the 26-year-old girl we met in the store. And she's also a classical musician. She's a cellist, fantastic cello player, and a, a tiny little person. Jill is short. She can't be more than five feet tall. And I'm sure she weighs well under 100 pounds. Just a tiny little person with very light, sweet, gentle spirit. And I just liked her. Like, I... I liked her vibe. There was something really beautiful about her vibe. Yeah, this is 
this girl is really, there's something special about her. There's a certain energy I can feel just from her spirit. A gentle, light, funny, kind, a sweetheart. And I noticed that she wasn't really buying normal groceries. <laughs> she had three things in her shopping cart. What is this? Maple syrup, specifically grade B maple syrup, lemons, and cayenne pepper. That was it. Who buys maple syrup, cayenne pepper, and lemons? And that's it. For one, I don't understand. So I just asked her, you know, bold enough to, what's, what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm getting ready for this fast that I do. It's called the Master Cleanser. Said, what's that? I've never heard about that before. And well, she said, okay, so this man named Stanley Burroughs wrote a book called The Master Cleanser. It's about this 10-day liquid diet. And so I make a certain beverage that uses water and these three ingredients only in a certain proportion that the author explains in his book. And I do it for 10 days as a cleanse, as a fast, as a way of rejuvenating myself physically and spiritually. Now, at that time, I didn't really have any experience with fasting, except I was a vegan for four years. So that is a kind of fasting, actually. But I've never been fasting like this, like literally no food at all for 10 days. That seems like a long time. By the way, it is a long time. Yeah. Even if you're just drinking liquid 10 days with no food at all, and the only liquid you can drink is either this, it's basically a lemonade recipe with cayenne pepper, or water. And that's all you got for 10 days. Immediately I said to Jill, hey, can I do it with you? Can you show me how to do this? I want to do this with you. He said, yeah, sure. I, I love that. So let's do it together. I didn't even know her. This is the first time I'd met her. She was just my friend's friend. So I just started right there with just bought the same three ingredients. That's it. She gave me the exact recipe. And so we didn't live really that close to each other. And people didn't, this was probably, gosh, uh, you could do the math, but this was pre-cell phones being normal. And so we just agreed that we would call each other on the telephone if we wanted to eat. So in other words, if I had a craving for food, instead of eating something, I would call Jill and she would do the same thing. If we had a craving for anything, she would just call me instead of. So in addition to the no food practice, and this has a profound cleansing benefit, this particular way of fasting. And there was another benefit though that I didn't expect besides the physiological rejuvenation and the way in which my energy level shifted and my mental focus got much sharper, my overall feeling of well-being and joy was tremendously enhanced. But there was something else which was I became really good friends with Jill. Like almost fell in love with her. We never dated at all. But we had this like really pure. So my relationship with Jill, I've lost touch with her as of maybe 10, 15 years ago. But there was this incredibly pure space inside of which we were related. And while fasting, any emotions that need to be cleansed or healed or dealt with, they'll show up. And because we don't always know what we're doing, but I want to eat food. In other words, I'm hungry. That's a pretty easy thing to feel. So very often as people, we're feeling something. But we don't really know what we're feeling. So instead, uh, I'm hungry. 
it's not always actual hunger. Very often it's a compensation for I'm not feeling what I'm feeling. But the cool thing about fasting with another person and staying in touch with the other person or a group of people, I've done fasting with groups now since then, is whatever was showing up emotionally for me, I would share it in the conversation with Jill and she would do the same. So we became really good listeners for each other. And then we broke the fast. She came over to my place to actually break the fast together and to eat our first meal of food after the 10 days together. And his way of doing it is actually 10 days with this liquid only, three days of fresh squeezed orange juice only, and then the first actual meal, which is a bowl of vegetable soup. That was this this man's formula from the book, which is called the Master Cleanser. You can still buy it online today. So we did all that together and we finished it, the fresh squeezed orange juice, like the day before, and then the actual first meal, we did all that actually together. So it was this not only amazing experience of cleansing and healing physically and emotionally and spiritually, but I bonded deeply with Jill in a way that I, I don't know prior to that point, I don't know that I ever had exactly that kind of a bond with any other person in the world because we shared a spiritual process. No, we had things to talk about. We're both musicians. We're both in musical careers. We both love, in other words, we had a lot in common and our personalities were a really good match. But because we shared such a profound experience and that was the very first experience we had of each other ever was doing this long fast together. The connection that I made with her, it had an obviously spiritual quality. Like when I talk to this person, I still feel her presence and her energy and her love and her sweetness. What makes her a good person, a beautiful person. But I also kind of felt like when I called Jill, I'm like, I'm calling God. It just began to feel like that. Like I can just talk to her and I'm somehow also talking to God when I'm talking to her. And so we became like normal friends after that. And we played music together. We would rehearse together. We did all kinds of things together. Never dated, but we're just like really deeply bonded. And I got so much out of that, not only about the fasting, but also about what becomes possible around spiritual connection with God and with other people. So I learned a whole bunch out of that that made me a huge fan of fasting like forever after. So that was my first experience of any kind of fasting in a serious way. Although I'd probably done some juice fasting maybe before that, I think, by myself. But that was my first like serious fasting experience and it was shared with somebody else. So that story for me is still something of my, if you will, that's like in my personal mythology around fasting, if you will. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah. So, so did fasting then become a routine for you after that, or did it take some time for it to be like it, it part did, of you? Like it, it did become a routine. Yeah, it and did. It I think I did that practice. So the master cleanser, which was my favorite way of fasting for years, many, many years, I would do it, I would say three, four times a year. I think ideally they, would say do it once per season so four times a year and i think I, I would do two times sometimes four times a year and i did that for quite some time for a long time and there are different ways to do it the recipe can be changed if someone needs to gain weight because some people shouldn't lose weight they need to gain weight or if someone needs to lose weight there's a way to 
basically more maple syrup in the recipe makes you gain weight less maple syrup in the recipe makes you lose weight so people can use it if you want to trim down like a, a cut in fact the master cleanser if any bodybuilders happen to be watching this if you want a hack to get like after you bulk up to get the cut of your life but you can still train because you have energy to train you can work really hard physically on the master cleanser because you get enough carbohydrates to really you can really work you can work a 14-hour day if you wanted physical labor and so the cut i was like whoa this has all kinds of, like it makes the body look like a an anatomy chart it it makes my mind feel so free and so clear my piano playing would get better my conversations with people would be just deeper and more beautiful more meaningful and my connection to god it was just unmistakable and you could cut the air with a knife connection to god was so obviously a part of the process to be honest i probably made the mistake of somewhat taking that part for granted it's the strongest part if you fast seriously at least for me i would say my strong strongest experience with fasting is that my connection to god seems to become more direct and immediate and the connection with myself becomes what much more obvious which is often quite challenging to be honest but it taught me so much that first fast and then i had a journey of learning different kinds of fasting and studying and then water fasting i took on water fasting also which is quite different and more difficult than the master cleanser because with the master cleanser you can drink as much of it as you want to in other words you can get a hundred percent of the calories you would normally get from your food and it feels very different because you're not eating so you're giving up food which is huge but still as far as the the calories in you can drink as many calories as you want to drink basically unless you get tired of it but no water or rather water only which was my next step water only is all of a sudden no calories right there's yeah. just water all of a sudden that's a different room of fasting and i always tell people if they want to dry fast it's better to at least have some experience with water fasting before we're going into dry fasting or total fasting it's like an ancient way of describing a fast is it's a total fast or just a fast a strict fast which is to say nothing goes in your mouth it's period at all but that dry fasting came into my life much later and the master cleanser and then water fasting and a bunch of different other practices some juice fasting as orthodox christians we do what people call fasting but it's properly termed abstinence which is generally eliminating certain foods for certain time periods like no animal products and oil during lent for example except on the weekends when oil is allowed so that's abstinence but fasting really the the real word fast it means nothing in the way of eating or a total fast no eating and no drinking so that is a much more difficult practice but the way I first got introduced to that is so in the Orthodox Church, there's something called the Tipicon, which governs the church services and many other parts of life. And the Tipicon says every Orthodox Christian, all with no exceptions, 
should fast completely on the Friday before Easter. That's the day where we are remembering, if you will, reliving the death of Christ, the day Christ died on the cross. And so for that day, the Tipicon says, no food, no water for everybody. So I always did that. Having become an Orthodox Christian when I was 25, I would do that one day, that one day drive past. Now, when I started living on Mount Athos in the year 2015, which was the whole year that I was on the Holy Mountain, I was there for a very short part of 2014 and a little longer period of 2015, but I was the whole year 2015 on the Holy Mountain every single day, which is a really cool experience, beautiful experience. The full cycle of services in Orthodox monasteries where they still do the whole program in ways that is very, very, it's rare to find that at an Orthodox church anywhere in the world that's not a monastery because they're so long. They're freaking long, like long, <laughs> long, long, long services. And it's normative and proper to stand. So, you know, standing for six hours, eight hours, sometimes 10 hours, sometimes 12 hours, sometimes 16 hours in the longest services, that's hardcore. But also they keep the Tipicon for fasting in the, the better monasteries. So I was living at the Great Labra during Lent, which is the 40-day period before Easter every year. And the first three days of Great Lent, and I didn't know this until I was in the monastery, the Tipicon actually says all Orthodox Christians are to fast totally for the first three days of Great Lent. I didn't know that. I only knew about the Friday before Easter. I didn't know it's also supposed to be the first three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but that's what it says. Now these monks in this monastery where I was living, there's probably 90, 80 or 90 monks, pretty big monastery, and monks of every age, from men in their early 20s, all the way through monks in their 80s and 90s, and every age in between. All of them, no food, no water for three days. And if felt like God picked up the monastery and just raised it to heaven for three days. And it was already one of the holiest places in the world that I've ever been. It felt like, oh my goodness, this monastery just became a monastery for real. This monastery feels like a monastery right now. It feels exactly like the, the profundity of the experience of grace that came in. Remember, this is 80 or 90 devoted professional lifelong celibate monks doing it together in a holy place and then saying their prayers in their cells doing in the church services together which are long and beautifully chanted with complicated music that they took very seriously at this monastery it's very difficult to do that level of church music so there are certain things that i heard certain pieces of music i heard in that monastery which i am not likely to ever hear in any other orthodox church in the world because nobody can do it it's just too hard to do like they, they're not going to learn the piece because there are certain pieces that are literally chanted one time in the entire church year like i remember there's this one piece it's one of the most difficult pieces of church music to chant and it's only supposed to be on the tuesday the first tuesday of great lent once and it's impossibly difficult so you have to learn an impossibly difficult piece you chant exactly once a year at the most and most churches that i've ever been to like all of the Orthodox churches outside of a serious monastery, and frankly, most monasteries, don't take ancient church music that seriously. 
the ancients were, were way more hardcore about music, unfortunately, than most Orthodox Christians are today, sadly. It breaks my heart to say that, but it's true. So, but these monks were doing all that chanting, all the difficult, complicated music, all their cell prayers, while also eating no food and drinking no water, nothing at all for three days. It's like, goodness, how did I get a, like this translation into the heavenly realms right there on earth, or like heaven came down, or heaven and earth met. This is, it rocked my world, totally rocked my world. I said, what is this? Dry fasting can blow it open like that? I didn't, I had done plenty of water fasting and plenty of other forms of fasting. This is something else, man. I said, this is, because this monastery was already spectacular in profoundly holy ways. It's, it's a thousand years old and more. They've never missed a single day of church services in their main church, which was built in the year 963. They haven't missed even one day of church services since they opened the church. The floors are that old because they've never resurfaced the floors. They use them every single day, and they're still gorgeous being at that. So it was already a spectacularly holy place. So that remarkably holy place became profoundly more holy somehow in the way it felt to me. And dry fasting was the only difference because they have long services every day, right? They said they sell prayers every day. They have their church prayers every day. They do the chanting every day. So the, the one change was no food, no water for three days, and everybody sharing that rule. I said, oh, I have to learn more about this. So when I left Mount Athos, I started really studying dry fasting. And in Russia, there's a lot of medical literature on dry fasting. Some of it has now been translated into English. And one of the better-known Russian doctors who teaches dry fasting in Russia, he now has students in different parts of the world, I connected with some of them, so I learned basically from resources I could find online. I even found YouTubers who were making dry fasting videos, like in 2016, 2017. And I was shocked by that because 10 years prior, you find plenty of water fasting videos, but nobody yeah. on YouTube is talking about dry fasting. Now you can find quite a few people very seriously dry fasting and putting it on YouTube. So I got to learn and I, you know, there's lots of fasting forums and WhatsApp groups. And I talked to so many people, got really good resources. I learned all about it. And then I started to train myself by going one day, making that easy, getting good at one day and getting good at three days, then getting good at five days, then seven, then nine. The longest I've gone is just under 10 days, nine days, 21 hours. I should have gone to 10 days. I just drank my water three hours early. But so the longest I've done is 10 days or close. But now I normally don't go beyond nine and only once a year do I do nine. So more or less my protocol is one nine day per year, one seven day per year, two five days per year, three days once a month. And then I'll do a day here and there as it feels right. But that's kind of my protocol. Now, We've done a little preface to your your answer to the actual question yeah. you asked. So, but interject with anything you've got to share or what popped up for you when we're talking about it. Well, I'm assuming the research of the the, the professor or was it the professor the the guy at the monastery that his research on dry fasting. Like, what kind of stuff did he find out? And like, who did he study it 
who did he study or did he study like people there in the mountain or did he um where did he no probably not probably not probably not no these russian doctors because russian culture is an orthodox christian culture historically they have some things in the culture including dry fasting which comes from orthodox christianity which have become normalized in the culture so you can do things even in the soviet union with science in russia that western scientists wouldn't even look at now that i know of there is in the history of the western medical world there's exactly one study on dry fasting one ever and it was recent by the way they gave it two thumbs up all the doctors said in the western study every single patient improved in every way we could measure him with no exceptions 100 percent of the subjects and it was a five day in russia they've been studying these things for many many years so they have decades of medical literature studying people with different illnesses different fasting protocols different ways of breaking the fast different lengths of the fast breaking the fast up into pieces and these doctors have clinics where people can come and they just get monitored medically by doctors while they're fasting. And then the doctors will help them to break the fast. So they're taking a very scientific approach, the Russians, but they got access to dry fasting, I say, because of an orthodox consciousness, which is normative at a level of their genetics. And in the West, Western doctors have done many studies on water fasting for many years. But dry fasting is more or less foreign to Western consciousness until now. And it was also in ancient times, because all the great monks of old, everywhere in the world, West and East, both dry fasted. But the West kind of lost touch of that because the West lost touch with orthodoxy. So the Russian scientists have a bunch of research to share and I'm, I'm friends with a lady, her name is Inga, who is the daughter of the Russian doctor who did all of the most important dry fasting research. Her father's long since died, Dr. Shinikov. And, but he started training his daughter, Inga, in dry fasting from the time she was 13 years old. He said, oh, wow. her father, Dr. Shinikov, he said that the first dry fast should come after puberty immediately now with a girl it's very very easy with a girl it's oh, why is the that? way he would say is because it's immediately after her first period right okay. so with a girl it's like she has had a period yes or no if she's had having a first period immediately following her first period first three-day dry fast so inga who's my friend i can chat with her on whatsapp or whatever She's been dry fasting since she was 13 under the direct instruction of her father, who was the scientist who did all the most important dry fasting research. So her wisdom around dry fasting is very, very deep because not only did she learn about her father's research, because that was her dad, but he literally trained her starting at the age of 13. And it's find me another person who's been rigorously dry fasting from the age of 13. She's the only one that I know of in the world. So that's my personal connection into the world of russian dry fasting research also inga is she's an astonishingly beautiful person in a very deep way 
So if you look at her on camera, there you can find her on YouTube somewhere. I forget what her channel is. Or she's been on other people's channels many times. I don't know that she has her own, actually. But she's, if you look at her first well, you say, okay, that's a very beautiful woman who's probably in her 40s or 50s, but like obviously very beautiful for her age. But if you start looking more carefully, you pay attention to the skin tone, you watch her vocal tone, her energy level, and you notice that level of wisdom seems like you wouldn't have it until you get to be maybe 50, 55. But skin like that, you don't get unless you're like 25 and super healthy. So what's that about? Like, then oh, it's, oh, dry fasting from the age of 13. Hello. But it's not only physical beauty. There's also this kind of intuitive wisdom that she taps into when she talks about dry fasting. She received it directly from her father. She's practiced it for her whole life. So she's had experience with cure. Like name and ailment, she's probably had an experience either with her father or people that she works with curing that ailment via dry fasting. Not everything can be cured via dry fasting, but many things can be. So anyway, Inga uh, in the flesh, and in my experience of her, is an incredible testimony to what regular dry fasting does to a person. It makes them the wisest, the most beautiful, the most healthy, the most strong, the most energetic that they can possibly be. And if I knew an easier way to get, get access to all of that, along with this massively expanded connection to oneself and to God and to other people. If I knew something else that gave all that, I would tell you what it was, but I don't. Dry fasting is the only thing that I know that encompasses that entire range of possibility and is something that's very, very easy in the sense that it's literally not complicated. It's psychologically challenging, physiologically, spiritually challenging, but it's not complicated, right? It's yeah. Don't have anything that goes in your mouth. Yeah, that's not complex. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to live in some place. You don't have to visit any doctor's office or clinic or you have to take any workshops. You just stop this for this period. And the benefits are you actually have to experience it to tap into it. And then breaking the fast is an access to joy and to gratitude and to an experience of aliveness that is, if you could sell that, you would be the richest man in the history of the world, whatever that is that one taps into, especially on breaking the fast. The experience of joy, possibility, and appreciation for all that is. A glass of water, the sunshine on your skin, these kinds of things, they feel like miracles. Well, breaking a dry fast. And every bite of food is like, goodness gracious, what is this? an apple is doing this to my mouth right now? So it's this ecstatic quality of being, true, like ecstasy or the promise of a more profound ecstasy that our physiology taps right into by virtue of properly dry fasting and then properly breaking dry fast. So we could talk about that if you want about some of the preparation for a dry fast, breaking yeah, it. Okay. So how do you prepare for it? Okay. So there are, there are lots of ways 
to get ready for dry fasting. And because I like things to flow, I made a project for myself, which was what could I eat and drink that would make the dry fasting the easiest that it could possibly be? Dry fasting can be difficult. <laughs> if you ever do it, you'll know what I mean. It can be really difficult. It can feel like the fact that you exist at the morning of day four is miraculous and impossible, and you're still alive. It was like, goodness, how is this even possible? But here I am. It feels, in other words, uh, the hurdles that need to be overcome experientially, they're non-trivial hurdles. If, for example, if somebody's had an issue with demonic presence in his or her life, and he dry fasts long enough, the demons start to leave. They, they just do. Um, people notice when that kind of thing happens. It's a dramatic. So there, there are transformations and challenges that happen internally, as well as in the body, but also in the soul and spirit during dry fasting. So it's especially long, especially a nine-day or a ten-day, especially the first time. The first time you do a five-day <laughs> You put yourself in the in, in infinitesimally small percentile of people who are willing to ever do that. And it ain't easy. So I said, okay, how can I set it up to make this the easiest that it can be, at least on the physiological level? So here's what I discovered. I discovered a certain recipe that I make. It's an electrolyte beverage. And drinking that beverage or that beverage plus water only for fully one week before, and also eliminating all caffeine one week before. That's incredibly helpful, makes it much easier. And number two, which is more powerful even than the first one I mentioned, is a diet which creates and generates a state of deep ketosis. In other words, a very high fat, ketogenic diet, and I mean high fat keto, the fattiest fatty keto diet you can possibly imagine. If your body is very, and I did that, by the way, for one year, rigorously, weighing and measuring the food down to the ounce and gram to make sure I was getting these perfect high fat ketogenic meals for like fully a year, and that was the year that I really started to explore dry fasting hardcore. So I could do a five-day, so when I prepared like that, with a deep ketogenic diet and that mineral electrolyte beverage that I discovered how to make. I learned these things by doing a lot of online research and using my intuition and then experimenting in this laboratory called my body. And <laughs> I discovered, oh, my goodness, if I set it up right, I, I can make a five-day dry fast which the first time I did it, like I said, felt like an impossible miracle that God caused through me. But I could get it to the point where I could do a five-day and literally not be thirsty one time in five days at all. Oh, like, oh it's five days. I had to drink something, but I'm not thirsty ever, not even once. But that's because I did my preparation like really very, very carefully, and I figured out how to do that. By experimenting. 
So that's the preparation protocol. By the way, it doesn't have to be like that. I have a friend who drive past regularly. She'll eat whatever and just drink a big old cup of coffee the morning when she starts the bath. <laughs> right in now that's harder on it's harder on the body but people do that and the body does have the capacity to cleanse itself that is super powerful when we're dry fasting so what i discovered though is if i do this deep ketogenic diet plus the mineral beverage and like that's my only nutritional input for say weeks before the fast it can be so much easier on the physical level. Mm-hmm. And then it's easier to focus on the spiritual processes that are going to naturally unfold internally. So that's my preferred preparation. But like I said, there are plenty of people that just start dry fasting. However, the body doesn't like to to be treated with unkindness. So for example, if somebody wanted to have a very painful experience of dry fasting, which I do not recommend, do not recommend. And you know, give you one guess how I know about this. If you do a junk food binge with lots of caffeine energy drinks for two weeks before you do a dry fast, and then you do a dry fast and you just power through it mentally, prepare for one of the more painful experiences of your life from the neck down because <laughs> your body's gonna say oh you just fed us an enormous amount of toxins for a long time and now we've got you know whatever it is three days five days seven days so just clean it out so the body says great we got to go to work and clean this mess up on the inside and it does but when it has a lot of toxins to kick out like that oh it is no fun it is really no fun at all so i don't recommend that at all but you know, people do some crazy things. And and my my feeling, dry fasting is sacred. It's like a deeply sacred practice for me. In other words, I have to even treat my body with reverence, even to prepare properly for a dry fast. And so the quality of the food that I eat is a part of that reverence towards my body. And the body really appreciates it when it's treated with the respect that it deserves because your your body is a temple made by God himself for God himself to dwell inside of. And your body knows that intuitively. Your body knows what it is at a deep level, like maybe a deeper level than your genetics, than your DNA. It knows it at the level of, if you will, like the subatomic particle level. It knows what it is. It's a temple. And it's also alive and it has a personality which we sometimes ignore in our mental Western culture that's all in the thought world. We ignore the body. But when you treat the body as the temple that it is, your body is grateful to you. It's way nicer to live in a body that's grateful to you for that you're treating it like what it is. When you treat a temple like, say, a storage room for junk, and that temple is alive and breathing, your temple does not appreciate it. And when you finally do the work to clean that temple out, which is what heavy dry fasting is, it's a deep cleaning of the physical temple as well as the spirit and soul and heart and mind and all of that. The body lets you know, hey, that was nasty, what you did to me. 
all that junk you put inside this temple. The temple did not like that. The temple lets you know when you put a bunch of nasty garbage in there and then you do that deep because like, the temple says, hey, could we like be friends? But I got a little pushback on you. And the, yeah, the physiological cleanse that a dry fast does is very powerful and fast. So it gets rid of whatever it needs getting rid of in a hurry. So yeah, don't recommend junk food, energy drink, caffeine binges prior to dry fasting. That's a recipe for it ain't going to be fun. And dry fasting is hard enough anyway, frankly. Hence my preference towards a really good dietary preparation. And food quality is, is huge. So the cleanest food you can inhale or imbibe, rather, is, is what I recommend yeah. prior, basically. And that realization that the body was a temple, that was there a specific fast that revealed that to you? Or was that like a, just a, over time? Oh, boy. Well, we know, of course, because it's revealed in Scripture that that's what our bodies are, a temple. But yeah, my experience of how I treat this temple and then how the temple lets me know how well or poorly it's being treated. This is insider insider to me knowledge and experience so i i have treated this temple well at times and i've treated it poorly at other times and the contrast is massive and the body lets us know by exactly how it's feeling and when it's going through a heavy duty cleanse like that and it's kicking out all this garbage in a hurry like really fast that can be a quite painful experience, really. And it's to me, it's like the body's way, the temple's way of saying, yeah, would you please not do that again? Because it's going to hurt like this every time we got to do this work. Maybe just don't mess up the temple. We're cleaning it out right now. Could you maybe just not mess it up again like that? It would be great if we didn't have to make a mess of it completely before we get motivated enough to do a dry fast, you know. So this is part of the process, but it also gets deeper. When I first got into five-day dry fasting, truthfully, I got kind of addicted to it because the, the spiritual experiences, like I said, I, I don't really even have words for it. Every time that first year or two that I was doing many five-day dry fast, I don't even remember how many I did. I did so many five days. I actually did too many. I lost too much weight. It was not good. You can over or do anything, even dry fasting. So don't do that. But by doing all of these things, overdoing it, underdoing it, super clean eating, not so clean, really not so clean, all these, I've, I've done things that worked and worked well. I've done things that worked and sort of well. I've done things that worked, but kind of. I've done things that didn't work at all. I've done things that eh, I could get away with it, but it's not good. So I've done a lot of experimenting for better and for worse. And if anybody wants to learn about dry fasting, I I would suggest learn about it first because it's going to be much safer and much more healing if one understands the process and tries to optimize it or optimize oneself for the process, to say it another way. So I've, I've done dry fast for a couple of times before. I don't remember how many times, probably like two. Well, to, um, to tell me how that was and how long did you go? 
the, the most memorable one, memorable one I had was two and a half days, or like two days okay. and three quarters. Mm-hmm. And so I woke Great. up on the last day because I was going for three days. And I mm-hmm. thought I was going to die. I woke up, I was like, oh my God, I think I'm going to Oh, die. yeah. Oh, yeah. But, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. You thought you were going to die. Straight up, man. That's, by the way, that's that, one of the big lessons of, of dry fasting is you stare death right in the face. That's a big. If you if you want to drive fast, you're gonna stare right at death. That's gonna look right back at you. That's that comes. That's a part of it. Is that a lack of preparation though, or is that something natural that happens? Because then no, that was, you I don't think that was a lack of I don't think that was a okay. lack of preparation. No. My sense is you were meant to meet it. That's precisely the experience. By the way, the the old saints like the desert fathers. They talked about it. They talked about this. They're doing it to weaken the body. They're doing it to, if you will, get a closer look at death. That's oh, it's really that's what they're deliberately going for to stare right at death, right at it, and then here you are. Then the realization that seems to come after it is, oh my goodness, my life is a miracle and it is a gift. And I didn't do it. Not Here I am. This is a gift. Me existing, me being alive is a gift. Being given every single moment by God's mercy and love and kindness. That's it. And having that feeling like I'm going to die or I might die or this feels like what dying might feel like. By the way, a long, long dry fast from what I've been told from people that work with those who are dying is extremely compatible with the actual process of dying. And some old traditional people, like I know of a lady who's a friend of one of my clients, old lady up in Northern California. She was an invalid in her home, sick for years. But when she was on her deathbed the last few weeks, she started dry fasting just intuitively. And I think she did, I want to say, like a better than three-week dry fast. Three weeks she didn't have, yeah, yeah, but she didn't have a lot of history dry fasting she was quite a spiritually cultivated person in her own way and she was a bit of an odd person and a bit extreme but as an old lady when she was on her deathbed she just intuitively started dry fasting just intuitively and it was very clear it's the ultimate way to streamline the actual dying process in a big focus of orthodox christianity is we're learning to die well so you want practice dying because we all gonna die newsflash that's how you exit the body dies if you develop skill and facility with dry fasting you're practicing for a good death down to the level of your physiology and deeper down to the level of your spirit that's really what it's about and you, you, you tapped into it. And yeah. you tapped right, right into it. It was pretty vivid, right? Like you couldn't miss it. Could not. <laughs> yeah, there's no way. You can't step like, I can't ignore that feeling because it feels like I'm going to die. It's quite real, isn't it? It's like, Brr. it's quite yeah. real. Very real. Good on you, man, for doing that, by the way. I know the courage that requires, and especially to do it your, yourself, by yourself, alone. Hats, hats off to you. That's... Uh, that's Thank impressive, you. actually. Yeah, man. Yeah, you bet. Now, yeah, we, uh, we might talk a little bit about 
I was going to say so, we might talk a little bit about breaking a dry fast, if you like, because there's some technique there that would be worth talking about. If you have any other things you want to thread in there as well, by all means. Before we get into that, I would say let's talk about like what do you do during a nine, nine like five day, nine day fast? Like what does your routine look like? Because I know that's probably like a sure. lot of okay. time on your hands. Probably not. I mean, maybe working. I don't know if you're working during it, but like what do you do? During okay, it? great, uh, great question. Great, very practical. Okay, so. So now this has taken practice. So this is how it is for me now. This is not how it would necessarily be for most people, but it is how it is for me now. I can do a five day anytime I want to do a five day and I don't have to change one single thing in my schedule. Nothing. I can do a completely normal day working, whatever seeing clients, coaching, teaching, singing, the whole thing. So if I'm doing a five-day, I don't have to change anything at all. I can do all of it. No changes. When I go beyond five days, the cleansing at a seven-day is significantly deeper than a five-day. Or if that's not true, if it's not deeper, there does seem to be a bit of a qualitative shift. It's almost like a, there's another gear. It says, okay, we're going to shift into there. Like, oh, now life is actually different. And the way that that feels for me, if I'm going to go beyond five days, certainly if I'm going beyond seven days, I reorganize my schedule for the later days of the fast. And especially whenever I go past seven days, my desire to be alone, to be engaged in basically nothing but spiritual pursuits, by which I mean like nothing other than say philosophy, religion, prayer, and rest, which becomes obviously necessary. Nothing else even seems slightly relevant. So I'll give you an example. I'm a martial arts fan. Have been since I was really little. I love martial arts. I mean, obsessively. I love martial arts. And I love high-level martial artists, what it takes to become one. And I love watching them compete and learning about that process of martial arts. So I follow things like the UFC. I follow fighters that I respect online. I watch fight breakdowns. These are things that I'll do because I enjoy it, things I pay attention to because it's fun for me and I get a lot out, out of it emotionally, even physically. It's like tap something. That kind of stuff, it is gone from my consciousness at that length of a dry fast. It's just anything other than religion, philosophy, prayer, rest uh, occurs like an absurdity almost. I happen to really love political philosophy, which is a whole domain, is a whole angle of philosophy that's a big, big influence on what created the United States of America philosophically. If you want to answer that question, you have to read people like John Locke in that set of political philosophers. So watching videos on YouTube of political philosophy is a thing that's interesting to me and fun. Not then. It doesn't, it would seem... Patently absurd. I can't, I can't do 
after a seven seven days and beyond. I mean, I could put it on force myself, but it feels like I would literally rather stare at the blank wall. No kidding. Like that's how irrelevant a lot of worldly or more worldly, not even bad things. I think martial arts are noble and inspiring and generally very, very important for mankind. And political philosophy is the thought mechanisms that we use to organize society, which is obviously pretty gosh darn important. But those two things don't feel relevant to me like viscerally, and nor does talking to people, generally speaking. So unless it's a very focused conversation around spirituality, philosophy, religion, in a super deep and personal way, I can do that. Like I can make those videos. But a whole bunch of stuff just disappears from what feels interesting or relevant to me, or even from what I can tolerate. So those kinds of shifts, those radical shifts in consciousness and experience, they do show up, especially as the, the dry fasting length increases and how many times one dry fasts. Every time you do a three day, every time you do a five day, every time you do a seven day, every time you do a nine day, it's going to give you access potentially to something deeper than the last time. And it gets deeper and, and it doesn't seem to have any limit. Especially if the time is well used spiritually, especially, especially if you really use that time well, you know, conscious, focused, intentional spirituality, prayer, a rule of prayer, charitable giving, tithing. Those are the big, powerful practices to include with fasting, according to orthodoxy. And a real clear program of that, like maybe something as simple as I'm not buying any food so I can walk to a local church once a day, which is near my house, and put some money in their offering box at the back of the church instead of buying food every day. Or, and or I can give some money to a poor person or give some food to a poor person on the street, which are not hard to find if you're looking for that. <laughs> and then on top of that, a very clear rule of spiritual reading, and praying that like really focused programmed inside of a dry fast that's a way to really access something quite profound that mo most people in the world may never even care to access it's it is rarefied air at that point it is pure philosophy it is pure spirituality it's pure religion pure it's very like we're not kidding this is what it's about <laughs> yeah so you're you're saying something to yourself when you dry fast seriously. So here's what I mean. If the point of life is to just have a really great time, acquire property, enjoy that property, make friendships, enjoy those friendships, make a family, enjoy the family, create relationships, enjoy the relationships, create a business, enjoy the prosperity. If that's all that life is for, and I mean all of the good things that you can do in the material world, if that's all that life is for, 
we probably wouldn't find any reason to drive fast. But if life is for something that's even more profound than biological viability itself, dry fasting makes perfect sense. And this is something like, you remember when Christ said in the Gospels, he who will lose his life for my sake will find it. So we're, we're losing to win when we're dry fasting. We're losing something that from a material perspective makes no sense. What in the world are you doing giving up food and water when doing that enough causes your body to die? That only makes sense if there's something that's more important than your own biological instantiation. If there's something transcendent something suprapersonal, something magnificently larger than you, that somehow looking through the window of your own mortality, your own death, can allow you to tap into. So you begin to tap into very, very profoundly spiritual realities. And like what you had, you know, close to day three, you nobody could ignore the experience you were having if you were the person having that. That experience that's a spiritual experience is what you were having you couldn't not have that experience right that was the experience couldn't avoid that experience if your priorities in life are spiritual then you know that experiences like that are necessary for spiritual growth very much like if you're a weightlifter and you want to get stronger there's a bunch of things you're gonna to have to do especially to get like world-class strong. And those things are things that most people are not willing to do, right? Because most men, even if we lift weights, most of us don't care about being the number one power lifter in our weight class in the world. That's a very, very small number of people. So if you look at the things that those men are doing, who are the most devoted power lifters or strong men or weight lifters like Olympic style in the world, they do a whole bunch of things. The most of us are like, no, thank you. That doesn't sound like a fun way to spend six hours at all. I just, no, thanks. I'll just, you know, do a chill three days a week at the gym, keep my diet where it needs to be, and I'm good. I go running twice a week. It's all good in the hood, you know. But what they're up to is like, whoa. Oh, that's because they're trying to become the strongest people on the face of the earth, right? In other words, so they're going to do things that only they care about because of what their goals are. So if your goals are the profoundest spiritual goals, and that's really what you say you're here for, then dry fasting, it's not only that it makes sense, it actually becomes necessary in my experience. I can't not dry fast that I know of. I now have an existential need for that experience. And the truth is I crave it. Like right now, in my heart, in my spirit, and in a more gross way, or maybe more subtle way, even in my body, there's actually a craving to a dry fast to my next one, which is probably soon. So that's all of a sudden, that's a hunger that isn't for food. And it isn't for anything else either. It's not for a Ferrari. It's not for a hot girl. It's not for a better computer. It's, it's a craving but it's for something that isn't material. So that's spiritual hunger.
And when we're obsessed with fulfilling our physical hunger for physical food and drink, it's very, very difficult to tap into spiritual hunger. But if you can tap into spiritual hunger really, truly, and dry fasting is an opportunity. It's not a guarantee, by the way. It's an opportunity to tap into spiritual hunger. It's almost a guarantee if you take it seriously, but it's not really guaranteed. But if you rigorously practice dry fasting, especially longer ones, you're going to, at least hopefully, begin to have an experience of spiritual <clears throat> hunger. And that means that the, the body part of you, that the body part of you is the desiring aspect of you which is according to the ancient greek philosophers and also to the church fathers who agree on many things including that your hunger is meant to be for god it was meant to be to bring you in this magnetic you know desire has a magnetism to it there's a magnetism think of a man and a woman in love like really truly in love, and then they get married. Jeff, to tell them what they should be doing on their wedding night? Like, you know, like, please, boys and girls, remember that on your wedding night, this is, no, they're going to do what they're going to do on their wedding night, because the desire is that strong. The desire has them do that, from which we get babies and intimate relationships. But when desire is tapped right into the spiritual realm directly, it's a direct access to what the desiring power, which was given to you by God, but it's how your body functions, is actually for. Like Christ said, when his disciples came to him and he was with the Samaritan woman at the well, remember? St. Fotini, yeah. and he had not eaten, and they knew he hadn't eaten. And he said, I think I have to eat and drink Whereof you know not, or something like that. I'm probably misquoting the king. Have food tea that you know not of. Precisely. There you go. The Lord is giving us this window into the reality of spiritual hunger, which, of course, being fully God and fully man, was his normative every single moment. That's what it feels. And he's telling them, this is an aspect of how you're supposed to be as men created by God that you're not currently tapping because you're tapping into we need to eat like you know good hebrew mommies need their boys to eat so they grow up big and strong that's really good and it's an important part of childhood but he's now saying you are men you are my disciples there's a kind of hunger there is also a kind of spiritual nourishment that you need to know about and then he let them know that is to do the will of my father that's my spiritual that is my meat and drink so that window into spiritual hunger, in my experience, is one of the qualities that becomes available through dry fasting. And the quality of spiritual hunger is so precious. Because you know how it kind of feels good to be hunger, to be really hungry, and then you have a meal and you satisfy your hunger? Yeah. You know that, that experience? Well, it turns out that's kind of like a metaphor for spiritual hunger, which is then fulfilled. It's really something it's really 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 something and if you want to tap your spiritual hunger dry fasting is a way to do it
So really profound way to do it. And you were made to be able to be hungry. So your hunger is a gift, just like your capacity for sexual desire. It's supposed to be a magnet to pull you closer to God. That's what it's for. But we mostly don't use it for what it's for. We point it at something else. So dry fasting is an opportunity to point the desiring power of your soul right at God himself. And then to receive that nourishment, if you will, directly from God himself. So last question, like how would you break a dry fast? Great, 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 great. Okay, so this is very, very important at three days and beyond. Less than three days, it's more forgiving. If you do a really long dry fast and you don't break it gracefully, that's going to be unpleasant. This is the voice of experience. I've done a bunch of things that I don't recommend that anybody does, but the mistakes that I've made, you can avoid. So the simplest dry fasting protocol for breaking a dry fast, the simplest that I know of, and it's very effective. So take a quart of water or a liter of water, and in the water, dissolve. Is it, it, should be the, it should be the Sorry, best. Is it a specific water, or is it distilled water? Or like, what kind of water is it? It should be the, the best drinking water you can get, which, in my opinion, is spring water that is grounded and clean and free of any chemicals. That's the ideal is spring water. Okay. Always get the best water you can. Spring water is the best. The best spring water in glass bottles or right out of a spring is, of course, ideal. I have a friend who lives in India, and she's from part of India where having a well like next to your house is normal. So spring water is just what they call water where she lived. Yeah. But not everybody lives like that. So I would get the best spring water would be my recommendation. The best you can get. The best, best cleanest. In glass bottles if you can do it. Because I know it can get expensive to get nice water today. But the best, cleanest spring water that you can get. So take that water. Dissolve in the water one teaspoon of bicarbonate soda, just like good old Arm & Hammer baking soda, bicarbonate soda, baking soda. So one teaspoon dissolved in a quart of water and sip it slowly. And then if you break the fast in the morning, which is a good idea, it's advisable to break a fast in the morning, then have a moderate meal in the evening which includes protein and no raw food at all. That's the simplest, easiest to remember dry fasting or breaking the dry fasting protocol. Now I have others. I have multiple protocols, all of which work in different ways. And there are ways to do more delicious beverages that are also nourishing. There are ways to, so I have a whole bunch of approaches. What I typically do is a beverage which is called a bubbly. And there's a recipe for that. And it's basically about eight ounces of a dark fruit juice, like a pomegranate juice or a dark grape juice, mm -hmm. pasteurized. And you don't want it raw. You want it pasteurized, like you buy it in the bottles in the store. But it should not have sugar added. So, for example, a good example, if you're an American, Welch's grape juice. You've seen the Welch's brand? 
It's that dark yeah. purple glass bottle. That's that's a perfect example. The kind of juice you can use for this. You take a cup of the juice into the juice, or prior to you adding the juice. In fact, you put the baking soda again, one teaspoon, a full teaspoon of baking soda, bicarbonate soda, into a large enough container for the bubbles, which are coming, I promise. And then you add into that one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, not Bragg's raw apple cider vinegar. No, no, no. Just regular apple cider vinegar that is pasteurized, not the Bragg's, which is raw. Stay away from raw food on your first day break and to dry fast. Your kidneys will thank me, I promise you. So you take the one tablespoon of the apple cider vinegar, one teaspoon of the baking soda. They fizz up in a large container, like say a big glass, like this one, or even a small teapot, because it'll fizz up. And then add the juice in, the eight ounces of the dark grape juice, pomegranate juice, like the palm pomegranate juice, which is good quality. That works great too. Pour it in there, it's going to bubble up like crazy. The baking soda, the vinegar, plus the juice, it's going to, so you have to use a big enough container or you'll spill it everywhere. And then sip on that very slowly. That's my personal favorite fast breaker. Then I'll go into from there, I'll go in, into about mm, two to four hours of melted water. This is a fancier fast breaking protocol because I like it, feels good. Melted water is simply the best spring water you can get frozen in your freezer and then unfrozen, kept in your fridge. But melted water changes its structure when it's frozen and melted. It's very beneficial, especially after dry. So I finished the bubbly, then two to four hours of melted water. And maybe if I feel like it, a little coconut water, which is great. The best coconut water you can find, super good fast breaker always. And then again, one meal in the evening. And my personal favorite is a very, very, very simple chicken soup recipe. Extremely simple chicken soup recipe that has basically no, nothing in it but the chicken broth, the meat of the chicken. I'll sprinkle a little bit of cheddar cheese on top and then squeeze lemon juice over the bowl. So it's a, it's a it's chicken soup, but it's very, very simple. Not many ingredients because it's very easy for the body to receive that. So that is usually my first meal on the night of the day when I break a dry fast. And typically, it's a good idea to break a dry fast in the morning if possible. You can break it later too. There are ways to break it out, but that's just convenient because you get all this time, which is liquid only. And then finally, one meal, maybe at the end of the day. So that's that's the way to do it. It works very, very well for a lot of people. Well, that's awesome. I think we completed our, our, our little segment here, a little talk. But um, thank you. I appreciate Great, you coming man. on. You're so welcome. You have like, created a fasting seminar because your questions <laughs> were really good and natural. So basically, you had me do a fasting seminar for anybody that wants one. Here is our introduction to dry fasting seminar. Yeah, it's a, it's a great so, Absolutely. And if you have any questions or comments, gentlemen, feel free to leave them and say, hey, this is what I'm trying, what do you th whatever, you want to share your experience. Dry fasting is amazing to share with people. It is really amazing. And I highly recommend that people connect with others who are also dry fasting. It's just very beneficial.
And for people that are like watching this for the first time, like where can they find you? So probably the easiest way to get acquainted with this kind of content for me is go to my YouTube channel, which is semen retention journey, just all one word, semen retention journey. You know, the YouTube user ads, semen retention journey. That's my channel. And then there underneath the channel, I always put a link to the telegram group that we have for men who are interested in semen retention. You can also personal message me that way. I also have a semen retention blog on Substack. So if you just type into Google, semen retention Substack, my blog is always the first thing that comes up. And if you subscribe, I will see your email address because it shows me your email address when you subscribe. And then if you want me to get in touch, just comment on anything that I've written that's of interest, I can reply to your comment or I can email you directly. If you have a reason, for example, you want some coaching, those are really, really good ways to get in touch with me or just to learn about what I'm doing. There's a lot of stuff to read on the blog, bunch of topics of interest to men, different videos that are all interested in either semen retention or spirituality, sexuality, philosophy, how these things intersect. So that's where you can find out more about me. There you go. Subscribe. And um, again, thank, thank you for coming on. It was an honor. You're so welcome. Thank you, Ezekiel. Take good care, man. Take care.